There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Well, let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grumbacher. <laughs> Joining me, as always, is Centauri Minor. Hello, folks. Helping us move from awareness to action this week is Catherine Alonzo, the CEO at Havelina, a marketing and advertising company working to advance equality, dignity through social, political, and economic change. She was the 2016 winner of the Young Professionals Athena Award, the 2017 Outstanding Woman in Business Award, 2017 Most Influential Woman, and probably most importantly, a returning guest to the Figure It Out podcast. Yes, this is your second time. Second time. But the only time Catherine shows up is when we're doing a live show. So we actually... <laughs> She our, our, needs an audience for it. That's yeah, absolutely correct. So welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much. So, Satari, what was your favorite part, specifically the first time Catherine was here doing the podcast? Oh, um, there were a lot of favorite parts. I think what makes Catherine so authentic and one of the things that I enjoy about hearing you speak all the time is uh, your dedication to the idea of kindness. So um, if people can do one thing in the world, it's be kind to one another because you never know what other people are going through and you never know um, how just small moment of a good gesture can really change their world. So I was very happy that you uh, that you shared that. Wow, well, it was my intention to try to stump Centauri. No, you can't. But yeah, it turns out, turns out I'm not able to at all. So Catherine, <laughs> welcome. Uh, tell us about your work with Avelina. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> Thank you for having me. You guys are so good at projecting. <clears throat> I'm going to have to <clears throat> do the same thing. OK, so sorry. <clears throat> throat caved in on me right away. Okay, so Havelina is a change engineering company. And what that means is we work with our clients and our clients are nonprofits, businesses, and political campaigns to advance change-focused campaigns by bringing together strategies from the worlds of marketing and the worlds of political campaigns. Today, in our hyper-technologically driven online world, it's not enough anymore to just have a great story you also need to be able to organize people around that story. And so what we do is help our clients bring to life and make reality the change they want, want to see by marrying together how you tell a great story, but also how you mobilize people around it. Easier said than done. Yeah. It, I mean, there's <laughs> a lot that goes into that. And that's not how we started. We started as a political consulting campaign, and it really, really organically shifted and changed because of what our clients were asking for and because of what we see the world needs. So it all happened really by accident. Nice. Catherine, um, since we just had an election in um, the most recent election, were you involved or was there a candidate that you all pushed through? And can you talk to us a little bit about how that all came to fruition and what you learned from, from pushing that out? Yeah, so we work uniquely, on the political side, we work uniquely on the Democratic side of the aisle. So we worked with David Garcia, who ran for governor unsuccessfully, as well as a lot of um, down-ballot issues and people. I think the, the big question for people who pay attention to this stuff in the last cycle was, is there going to be this blue wave? Mm -hmm. It was something that was talked about a lot nationally, but it was also relevant in our state. Um, we, within people within the progressive movement, have been saying for years that our state is trending purple. There are more and more people registering Democratic, more and more people moving to the state who have interests that overlap with the Democratic platform. 
And cycle after cycle, you haven't quite seen that play out. And so the big question was, are we going to, is that going to happen this time? And so uh, Kirsten Sinema, of course, won the Senate seat. Three other Democratic candidates got elected statewide, all of them women. And then also we picked up four uh, Democratic seats in the state house. And so I, that absolutely constitutes a blue wave. The question now is, does that, do we see that again in 2020 and 2022? Or is this something that was just kind of a one-off thing? So in the running the campaign, can you talk a little bit about how uh, the messaging and marketing played into something as big as a gubernatorial race? I, I, I'd imagine there's just a lot of things that go into that. There's a ton of things that go into that. It's A campaign is really complex and it has a ton of moving pieces, but really they're also incredibly simple. An effective campaign tells a really powerful story to the people that need to hear it. And so I think the reason that Donald Trump won in 2016 is because he told a really powerful story that was really persuasive to a large group of people. And Hillary Clinton didn't. And really, of all the pieces that go into a campaign, it really does get boiled down to that one central idea. Can you tell a story that's powerful, that moves people to vote for you? And when Donald Trump got elected and when Barack Obama got elected before him, both of them relied on people voting that were not reliable presidential voters. They both relied on people voting for the first time or voting in a way that they've never voted before. And I think the next president, no matter which party that they represent, will do the same thing. They will emotionally move people to, uh, to vote for them because of the story they're telling. And really, that is what branding and marketing is all about. It is super complex, but it's also crazy simple. <clears throat> it does seem like the power of narrative is on full display in, in politics. Is that... Is, do you think that it's a pendulum that swings back and forth and says, okay, we're, we're, we're telling a little too many stories, we need to get back to the facts, or is it always going to be somewhere in the middle? I think it's always going to be story. Uh, people respond to story, they're looking for story. It also, what story does is it takes a lot of different facts from different places and puts it in a narrative that's easy to remember. And you're always just going to respond more. If somebody gives you a list of stats, you are going to remember that or respond to that in a less persuasive way or in a less impactful way than if somebody tells you a story and then gives you the facts that support the story. And so I think that, I mean, I'm not saying facts aren't important. Right. Uh, they are important, but you can't have, I don't think, a powerful campaign without the story element. Yeah. Got it. So the difference between working on a political campaign versus a, a just a for-profit company that's that's trying to start a movement or create a brand, is it similar? Similar and then really different. Okay. So one of the things that I love about political campaigns is that they are really fast moving and the deadlines are built in. You have one shot to win and it means things happen really, really quickly. One of the biggest shifts for me when we started working with nonprofit clients is there aren't those inbuilt deadlines. So we would work with a client and you know, they'll think about something and, and meetings get pushed back a lot. And it's just, a, there's not that sort of urgency. I actually think that that is starting to change because of the challenges that we are facing as a community, a country and a, and a globe that is bringing in more urgency. And you're starting to see things move faster on the nonprofit side. 
The similarities, though, are probably greater than the differences. Uh, it comes back to that importance of story. And then the similarity that's really important, and I think this threads through every single question that pertains to marketing, whether you're an organization, whether you're an individual, if you are somebody trying to get someone else to do something, which is everybody in this room, the most important thing is that you tell an emotionally powerful story. You have to tell something that resonates something in the person that's listening to you. They connect to it. That, and to talk and really to build into Centauri's uh, intro, that kindness piece that I talk about a lot, people connect to that and it really uh, makes me and the work I do and the work that my company does memorable <clears throat> far more than if I sat here and talked about marketing strategy and social media and that kind of stuff. So I think that's the thing that ties the political side and the non-political side together. Got it. Catherine, at the end of the day, you are an entrepreneur, a business owner. Talk to us about how it was um, starting and growing your business. And I'm also curious, and how did you keep and scale culture? Because you guys have a very unique thing that you do. It's a constant challenge. So I am an accidental entrepreneur. I wanted to be a journalist. And then there's a whole story where I got arrested, which I won't go into right now. And that sort of killed that dream. <laughs> and then uh, and that's when I, that was on my 18th birthday. And then uh, I... I didn't, I sort of accidentally found politics um, and did, did that for a while and then thought, okay, well, I'll start my own political consulting company with my two founders, thinking I would do it for a few years and then run a nonprofit. That was sort of the ultimate destination. And then somewhere along the line, discovered that I love business. I just love it. I love that you can you try a bunch of things and you can see whether it's working based on revenue as a metric. And I also love that it is based on the vol voluntary exchange of goods, services, and ideas. I think that there's something really powerful about that. And I also think that business has more potential than any other type of entity in our world today to change the world. Um, and so I kind of got hooked on this entrepreneurial journey and, and now have very different career goals. And so, you know, my passion as it does for many, it, you find it by accident. You didn't, that's not what I thought I would ever do. Uh, in terms of the culture, so there's a lot of talk right now about culture and organizations and, and what that means and it, it can get a bit buzzwordy and there's lots of articles about having a great culture doesn't mean having a foosball table and free beer um, and so sometimes I think it's important to break out of what we mean by culture and I think what we have determined as a group the Havelina team that culture means to us is how we do the work and I don't mean how we do the work in terms of you know do we do we do it in meetings or do we work individually I mean how do we show up when things go wrong? Because that's really where you get tested. It is so easy to say you have great culture where everything goes right. We last year were working, one of the huge things we were doing last year was the Invest in Education Ballot Initiative. And for anybody that followed that journey, it sort of came out of nowhere, driven by a uh, really a movement by Arizona teachers, got put onto the ballot in a whirlwind, we were working on it. It was so all-consuming. 
and then out of nowhere, very unexpectedly to us, in an unprecedented move, was removed from the ballot by the Arizona Supreme Court. And so it was this crazy journey where it came out of nowhere. We, it, the whole entire team was working on it. It was this all-consuming thing, and then it just disappeared. And that was a really hard, sad time for us. Um, and we were there for each other. And I think that our, one of our core values is kindness, and that infuses in our uh, culture. And the way that you protect that is you talk about it every single day, and you thread it through every single thing, every meeting agenda, every policy, every system, every birthday celebration, you have to be coming back to what are, what are our values, what is our culture, and how do we make decisions from that place? Yeah, I think it's so important to be revisiting those things. First and foremost, you have to know what your values and what you really want your values to be and then consistently communicate those. Why do you think that business has the opportunity to change the world where other things might not? couple of reasons. I think the main one is this idea of the voluntary exchange of goods, services, and ideas. That at a business, what you do is you build something or you make something and you give it to someone else and they pay for it. And that idea, that investment of somebody that gives their dollars for your thing, it creates this partnership that has this tremendous, tremendous power and can give incredible reach to really simple ideas. Uh, the other, and then the other thing is that businesses have money to invest in change and have this incredible platform. The other thing that businesses have is a connection to decision makers. Um, politicians <clears throat> don't want to annoy the business community, and the business community traditionally has been a more uh, uh, has been an industry or a sector based more on conservative ideals, uh, or at least based on the idea that profit is first and foremost. And now we say more and more businesses that actually are defining their success, not only by revenue, but by social impact. And I think as that changes, we'll start to see business being such a tremendous driver of change uh, at the social level. Catherine, uh, that's a great segue. Talk to us about brands uh, becoming more socially conscious. So you had uh, Nike following uh, the Colin Kaepernick piece with the NFL, and most recently Gillette with their toxic masculinity ads. How do you think that'll play with the public? How do you think that'll um, play with shareholders? Talk to us about that. Yeah, so a couple of things about that, and I have a lot of opinions about Nike's <laughs> uh, campaign. So the... This change is really being driven by the millennial generation and the generations that come behind millennials. In that before, we used to have this division between business and advocacy. There was this idea that as a business, you have to appeal to everybody. You have to really uh, be attractive to every single potential customer, and you don't want to do anything to alienate any potential uh, future person that would pay for your good services or ideas. Now what we're really seeing is because of everybody in this room is that uh, as employees and as customers, millennials and the generation coming up behind millennials want to spend their time, their effort, and their dollars with organizations that have a particular value system and are trying to make change in the world instead of just making money. 
the theory being that if I'm going to spend the money anyway, I may as well spend it with an organization that's aligned with my values. And so what we see is businesses really being able to actually grow their revenues by, by doing that and by demonstrating who they are as a company. And you see that on both sides. So you have an organization like Hobby Lobby that has made it very clear that they align with ideals that are more in line with the conservative platform. And it's not hurting their business. And then you have an organization like Nordstrom Rack the day after Trump got elected, declared that they re refused to sell Ivanka Trump shoes in their stores, and it hasn't hurt their profit either. It doesn't have to be political. Starbucks was the first massive organization to offer healthcare benefits to part-time employees. <clears throat> they have a lot of programs aligned with um, employing veterans. They have partnerships with educational institutions around the country. They, as a company a long time ago, decided that they were going to invest and spend money on their employees. And that has certainly not hurt their brand or their bottom line. That I could go on and on. So recently, I don't know if anybody followed what Tom Shoes did. So Tom Shoes, the founder, lives really close to the location of the recent school shooting in California. And so the owner of Tom Shoes, and Tom Shoes, for anyone who's not familiar, is a, one of the most famous sort of social brands to begin with, uh, in that you buy, they are 12 years old, you buy a pair of shoes and they send a pair of shoes to uh, people that need it in Africa. And, but nothing to do with gun violence or gun control. Couldn't be further away. So after this shooting, the uh, Tom Shoes founder and the board took a stand that they were going to uh, advocate for um, background checks legislation. So not gun control as a whole issue, but a very specific mm. piece of legislation that they think needs to happen. And the day before Black Friday, which you can imagine is that the, it, it makes up 75% of their sales for the entire year, they moved on their website, they moved all of the shoes down below the fold and above the fold was a call to action to sign a petition in support of this piece of legislation. That no, no marketing person on earth is gonna tell you to move your shoes below the visible eye line on your biggest sales day of the year. They have seen since that, uh, that stunt, I guess, uh, record sales. They had their biggest sales ever and their sales have really, it's a very healthy company, but their sales have leveled out the last few years. And they, for the first time in five years, saw a significant sales increase. And men, which is a target segment that they've been looking to increase sales with for years, went from 10% of their purchases of their shoes to 40% wow. in two months. And so there is more, there's just evidence after evidence after evidence that Companies not only can take a stand on issues and make change, but must to be able to <clears throat> survive and thrive in the economy of the future. That's a very long answer, sorry. No, I love that. That was my soapbox. Love it. I think that that's really, really interesting. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with Seth Godin. Yes. Um, Seth Godin is a very famous uh, marketing person, and one of the, the things in his new book, This is Marketing, he says, people like us do things like this. And as you're talking... I was thinking about how an organization or a publicly traded company is responsible to its shareholders, right? And so essentially the bottom line is if what we're doing is hurting our shareholders, then we're not doing the right thing. 
but a public company is not trying to be everything to everybody, right? So if they're actually true to their values, like Tom's, like some of these other organizations, then the people that really care about them, that own the company's stock, are probably going to be happy no matter what. And in these examples, it's, it's, it's proven it worked. So, and it strikes me that, that in today's marketing world, I think a lot, of the, a lot of people, myself included, sometimes get caught in this trap of, I really should be trying to market to everybody. But that's, number one, impossible. And number two, it's just probably not going to work. Right. So are there examples that, that you can think of of organizations that have done this really, really sloppily and done it badly? Dude. So there is a distinct difference between what I'm talking about, which is a company advocating for their values through the actions that they take, and cause marketing. So cause marketing it's not a bad thing. It's just a very different approach. What cause marketing is, is attaching yourself to an issue so that you can get more publicity and people can sort of see you as a good company, uh, which is how I feel about Nike's Colin Kaepernick ad. Had, it, that was an incredibly successful campaign for them. I don't know the impact that it had on the sales. I would imagine it was huge. Uh, they got so much press out of that thing uh, that... They, I'm sure their marketing team was thrilled. And had they, with the ad campaign, because I actually thought the ad was beautiful, had they paired that with an initiative to do something about police violence, which is what Colin Kaepernick's issue is, I think it would have been a really fantastic example of trying to engineer change through business. But they didn't. It was about selling athletic gear. And so I don't know that, I mean, I'm not sure I would say they did it badly because I'm sure they met their goal, which is increased sales. But it's different and distinct than what I'm talking about, which is a business intentionally changing the world through doing, a doing the business of their business. Got it. Like REI not selling on Black Friday. Mm-hmm. I forget what it was that they did. Did they not make any sales on Black Friday or they like gave all their employees the day off and told them to go camping or something like that? So very cool. Um, Well, I think we've been touching on a lot of this. Um, What I'd like to talk about is just the difference between branding and marketing and then sort of segue into if I was interested in developing a personal brand, would you recommend I do that? And if yes, (laughs) what would those steps be? What would that kind of look like? Yeah. Longest question ever. Uh, So the difference between branding and marketing is pretty simple. Branding is your story and marketing is the mechanism you use to get the story out into the world. So the brand is what is it about you that, and by you I mean you as an individual or you as an organization that is true and authentic that you want other people to know. And marketing is what are the specific things that you're using to connect with others. Personal brand. So I have to tell you about personal brand. You already have one. It isn't something that you can turn off. (laughs) Everybody has a personal Mm -hmm. brand. And your personal brand is what somebody says about you when they hear your name. If if somebody said to Centauri, uh, you know, tell me about Catherine. If Centauri would say that I was kind, that's awesome. That feels so lovely to hear. And if he said that kindness was a part of my personal brand, then... That's great. What a lovely thing to have someone say about you. He might say other things when I'm not in the room. (laughs) Uh, So you have a personal brand anyway. 
And then, so my advice would be, and this applies to every single person. It applies to everyone listening. It applies to everybody in the room. That it, it, it's not about this idea of personal brand sounds so like icky and salesy. And that's just a personal brand has a branding issue, I guess. It's really just uh, about how can you be really intentional about what people think when they hear your name. And it can be really, really simple. And it should be all based on, on what your goals are. So if you want to, um, just to make up an example off the top of my head. So let's say you want to be the most successful podcast host that there ever was in the history of mankind. Then maybe what are some things that would go into helping you be the most successful podcast host? And it might be that you have a brand for being a really great interviewer. And so you would concentrate on becoming a really great interviewer, but then you start to use that in your language. And one of my favorite, favorite things about um, building a brand is this trick called the halo effect. If you describe somebody else in a particular way, that description also gets attached to you. So I actually do think that being a kind person is part of my personal brand, and I'm so proud of that. But you know what I never did? I never went around and said, you know what? I'm so kind. I'm a really <laughs> kind person. Instead, I talked about how kindness has impacted my life, how people being kind to me has shaped who I am and what I want to do in the world. I talk about how when I was six months old, my brother, who was three, died in an accident and what I learned from that and growing up in a grieving family is that kindness is all we have to help ease suffering in the world. It is literally the only thing. And if you don't do it on purpose, then you're not doing it. And so if kindness is as part of my brand, it's because I talk about it. And so my advice would be the same thing. If you want, say you want a brand of being a great interviewer, you don't have to go around saying, I'm a great interviewer. You tell other people about great interviews you've heard. You reach out to people and you tell them that they are fantastic interviewers and you enjoyed it for these reasons. And over time, it attaches to you. And the most important thing about brand is it has to be real. Mm. If you want your brand to be that you are really fantastic at math and you suck at math, <laughs> try and find something else. It only works if it's a genuine <laughs> reflection of something that really exists. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, that one's easy for me. You suck at math? Yes, I do. I'm just, I don't know if I suck. Yeah, I suck at it. I'm just angry at numbers. Maybe they're angry at me. They're angry at you, yeah. I don't know why numbers are so angry at me. Okay. Um, Centauri. What are you going to do to me? <laughs> I think that it's so important. I, I have down living values. Do you think that it's... I, is it more common or less common for an organization to really understand what their values are? And I think the same is the same question for an individual. How often do you think it's important? How often should an organization, how often should a person really go back and revisit, these are my values, I really want to clarify and crystallize these. How would you encourage somebody to do that personally? 100% of the time. So every single organization and every single person should have crystal clear idea about what their values are. And I've, not very many do. 
So if you have, if you are able to articulate these are the values that are important to me, you are exceeding beyond 98% of the population, I think. It's important because sort of similar to brand, you have it anyway, but having a really crystal clear idea about what your most important things are helps you know how to make decisions in life. It helps you know where you want to work. It helps you know where you want to live. It helps you know what you want to do with your spare time, who your friends should be, the things that you want to watch on TV, the stuff you want to spend your money on, where you want to go on vacation. It drives everything. My core values are kindness and equality. I did not come out of the womb knowing that. It took a lot of reflection. It, it isn't something that you that all of a sudden sort of magically appears and not very many people I don't think could say these are my core values. It doesn't have to be two, it could be five. They have to be uh, clear enough that you can re refer to them and grab hold of them when you really need them and when you need them quick. Because when values really define who you are is when things go wrong. And so how do you then become, how do you figure out what your values are? And you have them anyway. They exist within you anyway. The thing you need to do is put language around them. So a couple of, a couple of different uh, tips. So there are certain things called pay-to-play values, which just means, you know, to be a decent human, you should probably have these. Like integrity, honesty, truthfulness. Those are, you know, most good people should, would have those listed. To say that kindness and equality are my core values doesn't mean I don't also believe in integrity. Uh, the, so that would be my tip number one, is don't feel like you have to put all the good buzzwords in. The, tip number two is uh, get to know yourself really well. And the way that you do that is you try new things all the time and observe yourself in those new situations. Do things that scare you. Do new things. Hang out with new people. Read new books. Just do different stuff. And it doesn't have to be big. It can be as simple as if you always drive one way home, drive a different way home and pay attention. And that's when you just get to know yourself really, really, really well. I've learned that self-awareness and knowing yourself really well is perhaps the single most important thing mm -hmm. that will help you have a happy life. And we don't know ourselves very well. Uh, we have all these foibles and reactions to things that we just think uh, everyone's the same way. And so getting to know yourself really well will stand you in really good stead and help you connect to those values. And then if it helps, go to the internet and print out a list of values. And the first thing you do, just circle the things that resonate. Circle the ones that jump out at you and then refine it as you go when you um, really sort of live life and... Uh, life has a way of showing you what your core values are. Catherine, um, in my in my work, uh, our CEO has been very much intentional about pushing us uh, around habits. So tell us about some of the habits that you have as an effective CEO. Some people are highly habit-forming people, and I am on that list. Uh, it doesn't take much for me to take to a habit. So, but every not everybody's that way. Um, some of mine are, uh, so there's the, the trifactor of health, sleep, nutrition, and exercise. Uh, exercise for me is like an antidepressant. It just, it helps. It just helps me maintain my stress. And so 
uh, exercise first thing in the morning every single day is a part of my routine and it always will be. And when I can't do it, it makes the rest of the day worse. So that's a huge one. Um, you know, there are these little habits you get that just make life easier. Um, and it is really based on knowing the things that really, you, knowing mm. the things that work for me. Uh, so I figured out a while ago that d- d- TV makes me really depressed. So as much as I don't like to watch TV, I really try and limit myself because I've noticed after I binge watch a show, I'm like really pretty low. Uh, and so there, are, you know, I really started to build the habit of reading instead of watching TV, which doesn't come naturally to me. I've kind of had to teach myself that one. Um, what else? I mean, I don't think I said anything all that interesting. What Those are kind are of the things that you're COO? Uh, um, well, one of the things that I've... Um done is I read first thing in the morning. So uh, there are five five or six publications that I go to every morning to make sure that that's how I start my day. Um, exercising daily is one. Um, also, uh, this is one habit or intention that um, I've called out to my team that I'm going to, that I've been pretty good at, but now in 2019, I'm actually going to, which is um, inbox zero by the time I go to bed. So I will not go to sleep until you've gotten response for me, which is proving to be very difficult, but I've done it while traveling and I can make it work. So I think I can do it. So we have different philosophies on inbox zero. Yes, yes, we do. Because I just think you're going to die with emails in your inbox. Like why chase chase that horizon? Like why do that to yourself? Because seeing the number there, I'm just like, I can't, it's so annoying to me. But you get to inbox zero and then three minutes and then you're miserable again. It's just That's fair. And Maybe I need to rethink this out. Maybe you have to be constantly <laughs> on your phone. I don't know. Everyone's different. I love that. But I just think... Everyone's different. Catherine's right. Centauri's wrong. That's what we got. <laughs> That's what we got. Those are your core values. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, th- I think that all, all that's really well said. I, I love kindness and equality. My three values are friendship, justice, and learning. And I think you said like 98.5%. I think it's 99.9% of human beings have never actually taken the time to sit and write down their values. That's what are yours? Friendship, justice, and learning. So, like, isn't that Batman's? I feel like those. I hope so. <laughs> be, be totally dope if it was. So, Catherine talked about just going online and finding a list. Um, if you do that, if you take a little bit of time, you will be light years ahead of ninety-nine point nine percent of the population, and it will help you in every aspect of your life. If you are clear in what your values are, I bet you'll be personally financially successful because mm. you won't mm. spend money or allocate resources to things that are outside of what your values are. Um, I think it'll, to her point, 100% have a, such dramatic impact in a positive way in every aspect of your life. And you probably know what your values are, just like you know what your goals are. But until you actually take the time and sit down and write them down, that's when it really crystallizes. So I think that that's awesome. Um, <clears throat> questions, thoughts from, uh, from, from you guys and gals? Anything at all? I know what you're... Oh, please. Go ahead. So do you see like a difference between, like, I guess, revenue from businesses that have kind of like, like are advocating for something socially versus businesses that don't? I think we're going to start seeing that more and more. So I think that the businesses of the future will absolutely have to advocate because consumers are going to demand it. 
and employees are going to demand it. That employees want to work mm. with a company that is advocating and is trying to make a difference in the world. I read um, a study yesterday, actually, that showed that it's when um, people today are looking for jobs, it is the second criteria they look for. So the first thing they look for is the salary or compensation. And the second thing is that the business is trying to make a difference in the world. That's wild. Like that's, I mean, that came out of nowhere. That is such, that was not the case two years ago, five years ago. Uh, you know, things like uh, on this list, by the way, work-life balance was the last thing, I think, of six criteria. And two years ago, life work-life balance, it was everything. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, I think that there absolutely is a difference and we'll continue to see that trend. Yeah, so when you first decided to be an entrepreneur and do the trend, the, the, I guess, the from being a journalist to being an entrepreneur, how did you learn or how did you teach yourself to sell yourself as a company to introduce new clients? Great question. So um, sort of through necessity. So I founded Havelina with two business partners and I was kind of an entrepreneur by accident. Like I kind of thought of myself at first as a, a freelancer or a consultant. And then we were three years in and somebody asked, said something like, well, you're a business owner, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, I guess I am. <laughs> um, and so at first we really just wanted to, um, we just serve clients that came to us. And then the thing about politics is it's super cyclical. So you're really, really, really busy for about 18 months of a two-year cycle. And then you've got nothing to do for the other six months. Whereas I'm somebody that really enjoys more uh, consistency. And so it was pretty early in the business. And I, ident I identified, okay, to change this, we're going to have to have non-political clients. And to have non-political clients, I'm going to have to be able to sell. And that's when I sort of realized, okay, I'm going to have to develop this skill. And then the branding thing, the personal branding thing also happened by accident, which was I won this award, the Athena, and I gave this speech about growing up and my brother passing away and what it meant. And that's when all of a sudden people were telling me that my brand was kindness. And that's when I had to be like, well, I better catch up and really figure out what that means to me. And, th and that's, and that's sort of how it happens. So I, you know, as so many people in their careers will tell you, a lot of very few things are done on purpose when it comes to your own career growth. I that's, think. Very, that's very true. Catherine, I have a question. I um, had the great pleasure of uh, interviewing Ruzwana Bashir. She's the CEO of Peak.com this week in San Francisco. And one of the things that she talked about was being a female trying to raise capital or being a female trying to sell has been. Um, not necessarily a hindrance, but it's definitely been more difficult compared to her male counterparts. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about being a female entrepreneur. Yeah, that's definitely a thing. Um, so it's the gender and age as well. Oh, wow. So um, I think that rarely have I been in the position when I'm in a room and I'm pitching a client and somebody says they're not going to hire me because I am female or young. Younger, not young compared to you guys. Uh, well, I, I'm young in some rooms. And, um, 
Uh, so that doesn't, like, that has never happened to me. That kind of discrimination doesn't happen to me. What does happen, and this is, the, I think, the most pervasive type of discrimination I've experienced, is what you get included in and invited to. Mm. So you just don't get, you know, people don't think of me for things in the same way. Or if they do think of me and make sure I'm in the room for things, they kind of expect me to be the note taker. And what I have learned is that doesn't change until you make a change. That the way I think that you overcome discrimination and inbuilt bias like that is by really forcing it. And I just can't wait for the, I can't wait for equality to happen. What I need to do is force myself into a space and then make it fairer for people coming up behind me. And that's what I try and do as much as possible. Wonderful. Uh, I guess someone's kind of like, um, can a company still be like, not have a huge like social or like uh, motif or uh, motive, uh, what's the word, just brands or anything mm-hmm. like that, but still like their basic product, just um, an idea, still be uh, trying to make a difference in the world and stuff like that, but without having to try to appeal to some political or uh, other social. Yeah, that's a really great question. So absolutely. And it doesn't, and I think this is um, one of the biggest challenges when I talk to this about about this to businesses, is this assumption that to be a business that's making change, you have to be political. You don't at all, not at all. You just have to have a really clear idea of what you think will make the world better and do everything to, and work within your values and make everything to, do everything you can to make that come true. So an example might be, um, well, take Starbucks. Starbucks is not political. Uh, they really stay away from political issues and taking political stances. But they, a long time ago, decided that investing in their employees was a really important part of who they are as a company. And so I would say they do advocate for a better world, but they don't do that by having one particular piece of legislation or one particular view that they fight for. Uh, another might be a company that, I'm trying to think of a real example. There's okay. a lot of examples of this in the health space. I was going to say um, a big example has been offering um, paternity leave. So you create a, a culture of we expect the men to also bond with their child and, as well as the women. Um, and also any company that says we are not going to pay a female any less than a male in the same role. Uh, would be someone that I would think would be articulating those values. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a big thing. My advice to a business owner would be start small. Uh, Just decide a thing that is important to you and make sure you put all of your, um, you know, resources behind that thing. Awesome. Is there a point, like, for a political campaign um, where you have too much story and not enough facts? For a political campaign? Um... I would have said yes before the 2016 election. <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> um, yeah, maybe not. Uh, so I would say that the presidential um, is unlike any other campaign. You see this in maybe some high-profile Senate races. There are not very many campaigns that become nationally recognized, nationally watched, and purely about personality, or not purely, but mostly about personality. When you're running for state legislature, that doesn't happen. Like facts and what you say you're gonna do matter more because the people that are paying attention are 
uh, want that kind of information. So the president, one of the mistakes we make in the industry and as people is we take lessons in the presidential and apply it to all the different campaigns, and it's two different things. I do think we're sort of living in this weird time where story has seemed to be uh, more influential than maybe facts. That's my read on it. But I actually think that it comes back to this idea of making a powerful connection with someone. And it really actually shows that we are driven as people by gut instinct and trust more than anything else. And I think that is probably important for every single political campaign to remember. So like being a woman like in entrepreneurship kind of like feel and like kind of talking about like your struggles of like kind of like getting to certain places and like what is expected of you, how do you stay like self-motivated and keep like pushing yourself forward when like it's kind of like still kind of not at the risk of sounding cheesy, because of you, really. Like, if I, you know, if I want it to be different for you and the people that come after you, because I have it easier than the generations before me because of the generations before me, because they, um, they took risks and they advocated and they suffered because I could do what I do today. One of my, the things that, uh, so when I was 18 in my political science class, we were talking about voting and there were some people in the room that hadn't voted. And my teacher actually like threw a marker at somebody's head, which I don't think is okay now. Uh, and, yeah. <laughs> and, and he said, people died so that you could vote. Mm. And it, it, it has stayed with me forever. People huh. died so that I get to vote. And I sort of take that same responsibility the same way. Like I don't intend to die uh, doing this work, but I am absolutely willing to push some boundaries so that um, things get easier. Awesome. Go ahead. Um, uh, as a company becomes more political, do you think that um, as this happens, do you think people will try to find uh, That an organization would do that? Yeah, so like, um, for, so if I take a stand for like gun control, but then I don't do one for police brutality, how are people going to react? Do you think we're going to start seeing that more often with companies? That's such a thoughtful question. Um, yeah, I may, maybe, I kind of hope not, because I think that if you are, as an organization, as long as you are staking true to your values and staying in line with what your values are, um, then I, I think that's the right thing to do. I don't think I would ever expect any organization to have a, take a stand on everything or to advocate on everything. And then I think to, uh, to sort of widen your question a little bit is what, what criticism can organizations expect when they start to do this kind of thing? That, of course, is going to come. I mean, I would guess that Tom Shoes had a lot of angry emails saying that, you know, I'm going to burn my Tom Shoes or whatever. Uh, Nike certainly did. And... Um, the backlash. Yeah, there's right definitely going to be uh, a backlash. Yeah. 
And I think that's why values-based decisions are better because when you get that backlash, it makes it easier to stand by what you did. Whereas if you did something based on a different set of criteria, then that doubt might start to set in. So I would say if an organization was taking a stance on uh, police violence and then were criticized for not taking a stance on gun control, as long as they felt good about what went into that decision, then um, then I think you, it, takes, it makes it easier to weather the criticism. We have just a few minutes left, but could you give us some more insights into your view of Quality? Yeah, in, in terms of how I think it should. Okay, so I, in my view and my experience and what I've witnessed in my years on the earth is that suffering 99.9% .9 of the time comes from inequality. That when we treat people differently based on any factor that is just because of who they are as a person, that it creates this true pain that lives within a human being. Uh, I would imagine that probably most people in the room have experienced some kind of inequality and maybe you can trace it back to that feeling of like, you, you know deep down inside that this isn't right, uh, but oftentimes the very human reaction is to internalize that feeling as, as shame or um, guilt or, or it limits what you think you can do as a person. And suffering very literally, I think, creates a cage around what you think you're capable of doing or worthy of doing in your lifetime. And so that's why when I think, okay, how can I have the biggest impact in the short time that I have on earth, it's that. If I can make the world even one millimeter more equal, then the people that are freed from that suffering, just imagine what they will be able to do. How you do that, I mean, it's a big topic, you know, so um, there are the particular kinds of equality that are really important to me, but the, um, the biggest thing I think is if I can create, if I can create change, if I can change the political, economic, and social structures that create inequality, and more importantly, if I can inspire other people to do the same thing, that's when the impact will be bigger. I don't know if that gets to your good question. Anybody else? Excellent. Well, can I say one thing? Oh, please. This is the only time in Q and I've never been asked where I'm from. That is, this is literally, the, usually the first question is, uh, are you Australian? Uh, which I'm not, I am from England. You are from England. <laughs> All right, well, I'll ask what everybody wants to know. What were you arrested for? <laughs> I, uh, Man, this is like the nicest person in the world, right? <laughs> Talking about kindness. So what did you get busted for? I was arrested for inciting the law because I was the editor of my school paper and I published a story that was... Um, making light of shoplifting. Mm. And wow. I, was, I was arrested for that. Yeah. Wow. Welcome to England. Put, put the cuffs on. Was that here or in England? That was in England. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> okay, thank you. Real quick, where, where can people learn more about you? Uh, Havelina.co is the website, and um, I'm on all of the socials at, at, uh, at Catherine Alonso. She's got a podcast too, which is excellent. So 
check it out. Uh, thanks as always. Oh, go ahead. Where can we find your podcast? Uh, you can find it on iTunes, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's called Figure It Out. So please check that as well. I think you have a YouTube interview with me. Yeah. You can also see him on the interwebs as well. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks as always for listening. And remember, keep questioning because the struggle is real. <laughs>